Welcome to VC Confidential. I'm Ann Kennedy, and I'm here with my co-host and partner at Outlines Venture Group, Jillian Music. Together, we are managing directors of the Sibylla Masters Fund. You can learn more about our work at masters.vc. This show is for investors and entrepreneurs alike. We are ripping the opaque lid off the evolving world of venture capital to show you how it works and how, sometimes how it doesn't work. Our producers at WMR.FM, with the support of gracious sponsors, now host more than 50 VC Confidential shows. I'd like to take a moment to say thanks to you all. And if your company would like to become a sponsor of VC Confidential, reach out to Brasco at WMR.FM. That's B-R-A-S-C-O at WMR.FM. Hi, Jillian. Hi, Anne. What should we talk about today? Well, it's January, Jillian. Resolutions time. Get organized time. Let's talk about organizing things. Well, now there's a great idea. Of course, it's January. All right. So I'd like to talk about organizing the fundraising process. We've been at it for a while now. We raised the master's fund and we're beginning, you know, in earnest just as COVID closed the world down. Recording and that was a progress. mess. It sure was challenging. I'll grant you that. Yeah, exactly. But like anything and everything else we've put our hands to over the considerable careers as entrepreneurs, and uh, we've learned a few lessons along the way, and we've got a few tips to share with our listeners, whether they're raising a venture capital fund or capital for a, a venture from a venture capital fund. All right, then, Jillian. I've got a simple tip that applies to almost anything in life. Just get going. Just, <laughs> you know, just do it. That was Nike. Yeah. Yes. Um, there's never going to be a good, t the right time to start. Just send an email and ask for a meeting. Um, the ancient Chinese adage, I could never remember if it was uh, Confucius or another one, a Buddha perhaps, said, a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step, and that really fits here. The truth of the matter is that capital raises are a bit like public speaking or perhaps podcasting. <laughs> most, most people don't like to do it. Oh, and but we love it. <laughs> oh, but we love it because we will just talk, talk anyone's heads off, of course. Um, and a fair percentage of those who do it are downright afraid of it. What cuts the wheat from the chaff, as you often say, Jillian, is doing it. <laughs> Ideas are a dime a dozen. Those who show up and do the hard work are the ones who succeed. Yeah, it's tedious, it's tense, and it distracts you from what you want to do. Do it anyway. So just send that first email and ask for a meeting. Make it a habit set time aside on a daily basis. That's right, you heard that daily, to send out at least one email. The first email will take you about an hour, maybe even two or three hours to craft and recraft and edit and re-edit and finally send that all important first email. Then send two emails the next day. It will take hours to create a powerful deck and get it just right. Add another hour to edit it to target specific investors, and the deck will evolve over time. Don't worry about any of that on day one. 
just put one foot in front of the other. Send an email and keep sending them until you get a meeting. Yeah, I agree. Starting is really hard. But once you're in the groove, the next step, of course, is to make it easier to manage that flow of information. Right now on this issue of information organized uh, organization here, you know, Excel may be your friend and maybe not. <laughs> there are many ways to track a capital raise, whether you're a VC fund or you're an entrepreneur raising capital from one. Excel is like the lowest barrier to entry here. It can also be a band-aid though to pull off. If you're gonna use a relationship management program, uh, I don't know, such as Salesforce, HubSpot, the, the investor net, right? I'd suggest that it's best to begin using that software right out of the gate. That's a really good point, Jillian. We started in Excel because it's what we were used to. Yep. And also we already had it. Yep. Uh, and <laughs> See, oh, lowest, uh, lowest path to entry. <laughs> no kidding. Um, we found and we still find it's exceedingly rough to make a change now that we've gotten started. Mm -hmm. I think people tend to design their own tracking sheets to make meet their own exact processes and needs. And even if somebody comes up with a platform that uh, automates the whole thing, um, it may be really hard to shift. In our case, we did that. And to the disappointment of those folks who would like us to make the switch to their software instead, it's real hard to pull off that Band-Aid and make the switch. True enough. So I'm pretty sure there are some features that are included in paid software options that would be useful, but at least for the moment, keeping it simple is worth more to us. So uh, to our listeners here, you're going to have to decide for yourself. Uh, we'd love to hear from our listeners what you do use. Uh, tweet us. Uh, I'm at SEO Mom on Twitter, and and your handle on Twitter is uh, it's real real tricky. Anne Kennedy. <laughs> Boy, that's a tough one, right? <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, but well, let me let me uh, point out, it's Anne with an E at the end of it. That's right. That's true. So either at SEO mom or Anne with an E, Kennedy, on Twitter, let us know what software you're using to track progress on your capital raise and let us know whether it's working well for you. We're kind of curious on this one. Next up, I'd say again, just get on with it. This time, I mean, set up a tracking sheet or begin entering data into your tracking software right away. This is another lesson we learned the hard way. If you try to manage things via emails, you lose opportunities. We didn't get a tracking sheet up and running until we had about 10 or 12 leads and already that was a lot of work to get things organized. So don't go down the road we did to start with your first lead in your tracking sheet. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm hanging my head in shame because I still take phone calls and still don't get that information in fast enough. So those are really wise words, Anne. Once you do get going in earnest, you can always add more fields. You can always track more stuff. If you're using Excel, you can add color coding tabs. You can do all kinds of stuff over time. As your team grows, you're going to want to assign certain leads to various team members so no one steps on another's toes. You don't want to duplicate messages. You don't want to annoy a prospective investor, right? All that can happen over time as you need it. You get to build it according to what you need. I just want to add one more uh, entry level 
process a sheet that you could put in here and that that would be the Google Sheets. Uh, some people mm -hmm. are very familiar with them and can work them very well. We happen to be more familiar with Excel, but uh, the Google Sheets will do the job too and have the benefit of being easy to share with other people on your uh, your CapRaise team. Absolutely. I do like having that uh, so easy to get to. <laughs> Again, low barrier to entry, right? Just uh, click and share and you can edit live together. So onward, I've got our fourth tip right here. Get your email lists going. A stakeholder list with everyone on it is good, but over time you'll need to start separating out your email lists. Yep. Absolutely. When in Rome, speak to the Romans. The words you use to explain your fund or your company to individual investors are very different than the words and even the points you want to focus on when explaining either your fund or your company to asset allocators. Uh, in the case of uh, funds, fund of funds, investment advisors, private family office managers, and for that matter, nonprofits or non-government organizations, so on, and government entities. So when you speak with individuals, you're going to want to customize your message to focus on what's important to that individual or that group of individuals. Yeah, that's a marketing 101, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> targeted, personalized. Yeah. For example, uh, the Masters Fund has a number of descriptors. We can be described as an impact fund and a gender lens fund. We capitalize women-led companies. We are a global fund in that we will consider companies based anywhere in the world. We focus on diversity in the leadership team. There are many descriptors for a fund or a startup for that matter. Consider the hot buttons, as we used to call them in marketing, of the person you are speaking to or emailing in this case. What will you lead with? What will interest or excite your reader? What will make this particular read more and perhaps ask for a meeting. That's what you're aiming for. Mm -hmm. That's how you'll want to break up your email lists. It will help you write more personalized emails. It's true. And when we write to asset allocators, we focus on very different things about providing excellent deal flow for later stage investments, about the amount of work we put in, uh, sharing due diligence, all kinds of things, right? So it's really a very different conversation depending on who you're talking to. Make sure you know who. So now, beyond lists and emails, let's talk about the message. You know, the why, what, and how of Simon Sinek's TED Talk fame, right? It should be consistent across your entire organization. And so this is part of your organization process, getting that message across from everybody. So as you begin to raise your capital for your fund or your company, get all your team members to express that why, what, and how you do in exactly the same way on social media platforms such as LinkedIn, at AngelList, whatever it is, right? As David Teton noted in his TechCrunch article, he called it 15 steps to raising a fund. He said, all team members should have internally consistent and professional profiles on LinkedIn at a minimum and typically also on Twitter, Facebook, and any other platforms you happen to use. In particular, have your team members highlight the metrics by which you are measured in previous businesses. In other words, talk about each one of you individually, the size of an exit, the number of people you managed, uh, the budgets you were responsible for, and so on. And with that, we have to take a break now for our sponsors. 
We'll be right back with more insights into the world of venture capital on VC Confidential. More ways you can source capital for your company's growth on VC Confidential is coming up. Welcome back to VC Confidential. I'm Ann Kennedy with Jillian Music talking about what you as an investor, advisor, or entrepreneur need to know about venture capital. Before the break, we've been talking about getting organized for your capital raise. We covered first outreach, consistency in messaging, and also uh, getting everybody on board with that consistent messaging. Now, Jillian, let's talk about the elephant in the room. Oh, you mean the deal room? Oh, yeah. Now, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. So this is an interesting one. Uh, our good friend, Mark Suster, is a well-known investor and a, a copious blogger. He points out in his article on his uh, website called bothsidesofthetable.com that, in his opinion, data rooms are where deals go to die. What? He literally titled his article on this subject, Why You Should Never Have a Data Room, the most counterintuitive fundraising advice you'll ever get. Counterintuitive indeed. Now, why would he say such a thing? Well, nothing like the source, right, And I'm going to read directly from the article that Mark writes, and then we still should talk about kind of what goes into a data room. But right now, this is what he said. Getting follow-on leads is very hard because if a VC wasn't totally persuaded in the first pitch meeting, they aren't likely to want to commit more time. So what Uh. does a VC do when he or she isn't ready to say no, or perhaps might like to talk with you in, you know, a year from now, but not now? Often, they ask for access to your data room so they can do analysis on whether this would be a good investment for them or not. Now, most entrepreneurs and VCs raising from LPs think this means progress. It does not. The data room is where your process goes to die. That's what he wrote. So Mark elaborates on why LPs or VCs in the case of companies raising capital ask for access to your data or deal room. The reasons include this. Number one, VCs and LPs sometimes ask for data because they don't know what else to do in the process. They don't have a compelling reason to tell you no based on a meeting, but they aren't prepared to meet you again. Asking for a data room is the easiest way to get off the hook for a few weeks while seemingly making progress. They aren't doing this viciously. They might not even realize that this is why they ask for the data room, but I assure you, it plays a big role. Number two, Mark writes, VCs and LPs have a vested interest in having more data, whether they want to invest in your company or not. If a VC meets a 40, about 40 e-commerce companies, right, and has a data room on all of them, downloaded on his or her system, that would be, right? Then when they do finally dig in on an investment opportunity, they get to compare the information such as the CACs and the LTVs and the churn rates and the margins against a broad range of similar companies. LPs also do this with VCs so they can get a broad representation of returns data. In other words, you guys are filling their, their needs for due diligence. 
Well, I just I, I've just got a sputter here a bit. Back in my uh, proposal writing days at the agency, it was uh, we called this being column fodder. You yes. know, this, you had no hope of getting the winning the contract. They just wanted to be able to compare you. The other thing that I think is really annoying about this practice, uh, the fact you're you're giving away your information. That's right. And, and putting right. it out there and maybe they want to compare, uh, maybe they want the information so they can put it into a company they are investing in. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm all on board with Mark on this one. Okay. So the next one is number three, investors often want to see your performance this year in case you come back and look for money next year. Investors love to be able to see what you told them in forecasts in prior years and then compare how you actually performed. This is actually not a bad thing. You should be doing the same, by the way, folks. In this way, investors can make some assessments of how well they should believe your future forecasts when you are showing them a year later. So be careful as you do this work. Yeah, and so I just want to repeat what you said. This is something you should be doing anyway, and that's the reason, so that you can show investors, look how well we met, met our forecasts. That's right. We, we forecast well. We know what we're doing and you can count on what we're going to do in the future. It means you really have to do the hard work. Investors, right, investors often do want to do the first pass of analysis on your company and might generally have a uh, genuinely have an interest, right? But for the most part, this analysis is done by more junior people who can always find a reason in the data to show that you suck. It's not that they're particularly negative, but the fact is that supporting roles at investment firms are designed to show the partners the risks in the deal, right? And the upside case always requires huge assumptions to be, uh, be believed. So junior analysis of your company is often where the initial due diligence goes to die, unless you can be sure that the investment partner is also willing to engage. Well, then, such compelling reasons. Are there any good reasons to build a data room? I mean, you and I at Masters Fund, we ask for access to data rooms and we do read through them before investing. Yeah, not. that's true. That's true. I mean, sooner or later, they will read through them. But according to Mark, there are no good reasons to build a data room. Zip, sales, chilt, nada, he says. So what's a fund or a company supposed to do when a potential investor asks for access to a deal room? You can't say no. <laughs> yeah. So therein lies the crux of this whole conversation, right? Mark tells a good tale in his post, but the important bit is, and, and I suggest you do go over to both sides of the table and read the whole thing. But um, the, the crux of it is this. When someone asks you for a deal or a data room, say you'd like a short meeting to be sure you know what they're looking for and how you can best provide the information that will serve them. If the prospect isn't willing to take a short meeting with you, then you have next to no chance of getting funding from them. Engagement is the metric you're looking for. Ah, in the nonprofit fundraising world, as you know, I've had a long history in that. We call this moves on the prospect. And mm -hmm. we track every move on every prospect diligently in both nonprofit organization fundraising and capital fundraising. Yeah, that just got said. <laughs> yes, it does. 
<laughs> fundraising and fundraising. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Got it. <laughs> okay. Okay. But seriously, track the number of meetings you get with a prospect and what was said. Find out what's important to the prospect. What are the metrics that matter to them? Yeah, precisely. And now it's time to turn to your email lists, right? I mean, certainly consider gathering the information that's going to be needed in a data room. But what Mark is saying is you don't develop it and share it. You track the metrics of engagement and you share only that data, which is important to the decision maker. Okay. So you do choose a simple way to, uh, you know, a simple, easy to read template, if you will. You send out monthly emails that contain progress metrics, and that should matter to your various stakeholders. You make calls and you set meetings to review where your fund and your company is today, how you're progressing on those metrics, and you always keep yours and the prospects focus on illuminating when the prospect will invest. What must you achieve in order to receive a signed capital commitment? That's what you keep your eye on. In other words, KPIs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In this case, they are, they are key performance indicators for the potential investor. Right. Before we wrap up, when do you share the data that would ordinarily be housed in a data room? Well, you trade data for engagement because for you, engagement is what matters, right? So if your prospect is willing to take a 15-minute call to tell you when and on what conditions they will invest, then you're willing to share data with them that provides this prospect what they need to make that investment decision, right? Either now or in a few months, if they're going to watch your progress in achieving those stated benchmarks, get it stated. If the prospect is willing to take a meeting to reduce, uh, review the data that you've now sent, then you have a live prospect. If not, you don't. And you don't need to share any more data until and unless that prospect actually becomes interested. You can keep them on your update list. You can attempt to engage more deeply with the next prospective investor. Before we go to our next break, I just wanna point out something deep into what you just said. How are you gonna find out when and on what conditions they will invest in fund. Well, you have to ask them. I don't know how many initial uh, calls we get that uh, where the company tells us all about their product. They don't ask us about us. And that's a really important point. Yes, it is. Because um, how a fund invests in a company is, is critical to whether or not you're a good match. First of all, you should be doing that research in advance, but in addition, just ask. And that's whether you're a fund raising money from funds of funds or other institutional capital or individuals, or whether you're a company raising it from a venture capital fund. Absolutely. And in that, with that, we must take another break. You are listening to VC Confidential. We will be right back. More ways you can source capital for your company's growth on VC Confidential is coming up. Welcome back to VC Confidential. We are so glad you joined us today. We have been digging into the organization of raising capital for a fund, or if you're a startup for your startup. A lot of what we talked about applies to startups as well, so keep that in mind. Now, as we wrap up this, this episode, let's talk about what to track along the way to raising a fund. 
Well, the first thing that comes to mind is not just who we've spoken to, but how we got to know this person. There is a path to potential LPs or investors, right? And some will become LPs or investors. LPs make a good introduction pathway to future LPs because, hey, they're believers, right? There are other introductory paths that lead you to your investors. Track them. Find commonalities in who introduced you, in what they said at the first meeting or on the first call. These commonalities will make replication, replication and amplification faster and more efficient. That's so true. And as our final tip on raising that first fund, as there is no prior fund record, develop a list of your personal prior investments or other investment experience that illuminates why you are the right person to handle other people's money to make these investments. If you've been an entrepreneur, talk about your company's success factors that enable you to understand other companies' success factors and help you make wise investment decisions. Make connections from your past experiences to your present venture venture capital. Absolutely. And if you're an entrepreneur, it's the same thing. It's like your LinkedIn profile. Talk about what you managed in your previous jobs in your life and so on. What prepared you to become now an entrepreneur? Before we go today, Jillian, I'd like to talk a little bit about raising a second fund, which you and I are deeply engaged in right now. Heaven for Ben. So, yep. <laughs> while it seems counterintuitive to begin raising at, right after raising the first fund, while it's obviously way too early for results to prove the validity of our investing concept, our thesis, that is exactly what our colleague Elizabeth Yin says to do. As That's she right. raised, yep, as she raised hustle fund two at three times the uh, uh, assets under management that she raised in hustle fund one. She reports they timed their fund one announcement specifically to build momentum while they were engaging potential investors for the next fund. Hmm. She said this, and I'm going to quote because she is eminently quotable. Fund two is essentially a continuation of the fundraise process. Even if there is nothing to sign, you are always raising. She's absolutely right. That's true. It just kind of keeps going. Yep. She further recommends using scarcity as a forcing function. You know, good old FOMO. Um, she said for Hustle Fund 2, they told smaller investors early on in the raising, that the slots for them were limited in number. And of course, that's very true because of SEC regulations. That's and right. that the, these smaller investors would need to act quickly if they wanted to join the fund, because if they waited, well, they would eventually find themselves competing against much larger check writers. You know, absolutely you, know true. Could, you know who's going to win that, right? That's true. So. But, you know, it, it happened to us as well, right? We welcomed a certain limited number of small check writers in our first fund, right? And we told them very clearly there just wouldn't be space for that in the second fund. We're happy to teach new investors how to invest. But with the size of the fund increasing, you simply cannot manage that many small check writers because, again, SEC regulations, right? So it's not like it's just a game. These are real things. What we're saying is track it, organize it, get it together and make your message clear. 
Yeah, and in case there's are any of our listeners out there who do not know this, uh, the SEC limits the number of investors in a fund of say $100 million, like we're raising to 99 investors, period. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's you can't take a lot of hundred thousand dollar checks in that one. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So you got okay. one more tip quickly from Elizabeth's fund. I've got, we're I've out got, of time. I've got two real quick ones uh, um, that she found successful. One expand to another geographic area. In uh, Hustle Fund's case, they expanded to Asia, working their networks there, and their friends' networks. Um, and the last one is something. Near and dear to your my hearts, Jillian, continue to build your fund's brand presence with blog posts, tweets, speaking appearance, podcast interviews, or your own podcast, and as many other ways as you can communicate to potential investors whom you have yet to meet. Also, call in successful founders you have backed. Say, Jillian, don't you have something like that you say to founders when we invest? Indeed, I do. I tell them that our dirty little secret after we make them multimillionaires is to call on them because we expect them to come invest with us again and to give back to the next generation of founders. You can do good by doing well. (laughs) And so you should do good by doing well. And with that wise advice, it's a wrap for this episode of VC Confidential. We invite you to join us every other Tuesday for a new episode as we take a deep dive into the opaque world of venture capital and share learnings and ideas on the inner workings of the shrouded corner of business finance known as venture capital. We'd like to thank our producers at WMR.FM who graciously hosted our previous CEO coach show for more than a decade and host our new VC Confidential show now in its 52nd episode. We are grateful for their long and continued support of our work. You can listen to all our episodes from both shows right here on WMR.FM and in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ann Kennedy with Jillian Music, and we are so glad you joined us on VC Confidential. Till next time. Till next time. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited.